So funny, the way, the, just the themes, the themes of the songs this morning fit so well with what I'm going to talk about. You'd almost imagine that somebody planned it that way. <laughs> anyway, it's great to see you, and if you're new, my name's Nigel, um, and I'm married to Joe, and we lead the church together along with a great team, as Joe said. We're going to um, continue today the series that I started last week, which is called Who Is This Man? Um, looking over three weeks at Jesus... Um, his life, his teaching, his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And as I said last week, what we're doing is we're looking at how it is that Jesus fits into first century Palestine, the historical context that he lived in, what he was doing then and what he continues to do now. And how, if we can get our heads around that, it will call us into a real radical and different kind of life. Sometimes it's hard to cut through all the historical stuff. It's hard to cut through all the context. And also, everything that um, over the centuries the church has added down the line. I once heard somebody say, um, I think of Jesus like I think of Elvis. The guy himself, amazing. Some of his followers, a little bit strange. (laughs) I love that quote. And, um, and what we're trying to do is get back to, not Elvis, but Jesus, what he actually stood for. And I've borrowed, as I said last week, again, from an American vineyard pastor called Jay Pathak, who in turn has borrowed from a British Bible scholar called Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright. And we are looking at Jesus' claims. Last week, we looked at the claim of Jesus, that he was a prophet and the Messiah. How he thought of himself and spoke of himself as one who had the authority of God. And whose teaching, when you try it out, actually makes a difference. And he also, how he claimed to be the Messiah, the conquering king, who came to bring about a revolution, although not in the way that the Jews expected. One of the key points from last week was that we're not simply allowed just to make up for ourselves who it is that we think Jesus is. Some people do that. They make him into the character that they need to fit their lives. And and we can't do that. It's about understanding that he was actually up to something much, much, much bigger than any of us could even imagine. If we've got eyes to see and hear the whole story, how we can make sense of it and how it applies to us. Many of you were gracious and kind enough to speak to me after the talk last week and say that you enjoyed that. It's a bit disconcerting when that happens and it's someone else's material, but that's fine. Um, No, seriously, thank you for your encouragements to me about last week's talk. And I want to sort of throw the ball back in your court and encourage you to feed back to me on how it's going. Because if you remember, I threw out a couple of challenges last week. And one of them was just to simply try and live out one, just select one of the teachings of Jesus that's so radical and different and try and live it out for a week and see what happens, see what we learn. I'd love to hear from you if you've done that or tried it. Um, secondly, try recording yourself talking for three minutes just about who Jesus is or who he was and see what comes out then. So I'd love to hear how that's going. Email me, Facebook me. Um, when Jay Pathak preached um, some of this material, one of his congregation wrote to him and reflected that he felt like he had been treating Jesus a little bit like duct tape. <laughs> now, you know what duct tape is? 
I, in my head, I, I call it gaffer tape because I'm a musician. And uh, all of my life, I used to have a bit of gaffer tape you know, in the, in the bag just to stick things down. The thing is, in my early adult life as a musician, before I was married, I hasten to add, I had lots of gaffer tape around and it didn't just come in handy for gigs and for sticking down leads. It's actually really good at fixing a lot of things. Instrument cases. I've got a tambourine still that's 20 years old that's held together with gaffer tape. Um, but not just for, for musical instruments. Actually, it's really good for fixing broken bits of car or um, walls that I've got a hole in. Carpets, furniture, textiles, shoes. Fixed a few shoes with gaffer tape in my time. You're laughing like you've never done that. (laughs) See, this guy was suggesting that he'd used, he'd sort of treated Jesus a bit like duct tape or gaffer tape. Simply applied it to whatever area of his life needed fixing. Whatever area is in need, oh, Jesus can just fix that. Jesus, I need you to come and help me in my job. Jesus, I really need you to come and help me in my marriage or in my finances. And it can be tempting sometimes to view Jesus simply as a great counsellor or a great accountant. We make him into whatever it is that we need, make him fit the gap that's missing in our lives. But he's so much more than that. So much more interesting And so much more important, because he has a plan and a purpose, something that he's doing. He's up to something. And the truth is that Jesus' plan is to transform and change everything. Everything about us and everything about the world that we live in. Hello, wake up. That's quite big news, guys. There's much more. That's a much more comprehensive picture of Jesus and his message Probably than the one that most of us have been brought up with. Even dare I say it, some of us who've grown up in church. Because when we have a small picture of who Jesus is, we end up leading pretty small lives. But when we have an enormous picture of who he is, we can live a fantastic, adventurous and enormous life that's going to make such a difference to ourselves and to others. So following Jesus requires that we are part of the whole story of the Bible, that we understand and recognize the whole narrative, how it fits together and what it's really saying. I don't know if you've thought about it. I don't know how you view the Bible. When I was at school, I was taught that the Bible was a religious book and that this was the religious book of the Christian religion. And, you know, uh, Muslims had their religious book and everybody else had their religious book. And here's our religious book. But the Bible isn't a religious book. I mean, even if it's called the Holy Scriptures or the Holy Bible or whatever, you know, people view it as a religious book, but the Bible's a history book. The Bible is a history book which gives a unique interpretation of human history. Much of it's narrative. And we need to understand that it tells an amazing and grand story which challenges every individual to take hold of it for themselves and to weave their own life into it, into God's big story. And that, in a nutshell, in just a small way, is what we try and do here every Sunday. Try and open up aspects of God's bigger story so that we can see how they line up and how they weave in with our own story. Some people think that you can simply 
make up your own story, and then the Bible's there to add in a section called Things to Do and Things Not to Do. People think that's what the Bible is. If you think the Bible's a religious book, it's simply something that tells you how to behave. That's what religious books do. They list the rules. That's not what this book is at all. This is a unique story that calls each and every one of us to be part of it, to give our whole life in response to what Jesus is doing. So what is that story? What is the story which leads up to the time when Jesus was on earth? And how is he fulfilling components of it? If you've got a Bible, turn to the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. You probably don't even need to turn to it to tell me what the first three words are. In the beginning. Does that sound like the start of a story to you? Does it? It really sounds like one to me. I mean, what if every story started with those grand words, in the beginning? You know, I'm sure the new Star Wars, is it? Star Trek, I get a bit confused. I'm sorry, I'm not, one of, I'm not one of those people. Star Wars, I'm sure I will be as my sons get a bit older. Sorry, apologies to you sci-fi fans. I'm sure the new Star Wars movie will come up and there will be something that says equivalent of in the beginning, at the beginning of time. Anyway, that sounds like a story to me. And what if every story started with that grand story of creation? Nigel, so how did you become a musician? Well, in the beginning... So Nigel and Joe, how did, you, how did you guys get together? Well, in the beginning, how did you, become, how did you come to be in Winchester? Well, in the beginning. My, my family will laugh at this because I love to tell stories. Not, not made up ones, I'm not very good at that, but real life stories. And I love to go right back to the start and tell that Joe's just nodding her head. And love to go right back and give the whole context and the background and the connections. And it sometimes drives my family nuts, if I'm truth. They're just like, just answer the question, Dad. It's something I call, those of you who have done the Strength Finder, it's a communication and um, connectedness. Just, it's, just a, it's just the way I'm wired. Anyway, so grand as it seems, to start every story back with the creation is actually appropriate because that's where the story of God starts. And that's important. By the way, I'm not making any... Scientific, I'm not making any scientific points here. I'm talking, that's a whole different topic. I'm talking about the way that God's story starts. And the unique way that Genesis starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is different from all of the other creation narratives that were around in history at that time. In the ancient Near East, pretty much in any ancient culture, you will find a creation story of some description. It will not be like this. Most of the cultures that tell stories about how the world began, the way that they describe history, involve the gods fighting each other. And usually the earth is the dead body of one of the gods. That's a great way to start, isn't it? And humans are nearly always the plaything of the gods or the servants of the gods, a byproduct, an afterthought. And Genesis 1 stands in stark contrast Because this is where God tells of how he designed and created the earth for his people. It's hard to understand some of the real deep significance and the poetry and the shape of it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't read Hebrew. But even in English, it has a sort of poetic form and shape to it. It reads like, um, I heard somebody say, it reads like beat poetry. Or even perhaps hip hop. 
on day one, God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. On day two, God creates the light and the dark, etc., and he saw that it was Put your hands in the air. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The sun and the moon, and he saw that it was Oh, you guys have got this. Fantastic. You're all hip-hop crowd. Um, and at the end, it says he rests. He saw that it was very good. And most worldviews describe the start of the world, of our world, certainly in negative terms, or if not, in neutral terms. And here God says, no, 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 this is amazing. This is so good. You guys are so good. This is great news for us. This is great news for us because it means that there's a plan. Chapter 2 moves on to describe how people on the earth have an intimate life with one another, a relationship, an intimate life with God, just walking with God, and that they're working, that we're doing stuff, that we're tending and we're naming and we're working together and we're working with God to shape what the world is becoming. And that's really great news because it means that work is a really good thing. It was always intended to be a good thing. We were made to work well with others and with God in the reshaping of all things. Now, you've heard me preach on Genesis before. And I used the phrase, God is in the business of bringing, I get this right, right around, bringing order out of chaos. Sometimes we think we're in the business of being bringing chaos out of order, but God is in the business of bringing order out of chaos, and actually, so are we. And that phrase, to bring order out of chaos, pretty much describes any task, any job that we are supposed to be doing. In one way or another, you can apply that to your job. I can hear you thinking, yeah, but you haven't been in my job. <laughs> well, in chapter three, yes, it all goes horribly wrong. And people on the earth decide that they don't want to be like God anymore, they don't trust him anymore, they don't trust him to be God anymore. And they actually want the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. They want to be in control, we want to manage everything. And we humans are not made to be God. Have you ever tried being God? It's pretty tiring. Have you ever tried controlling aspects of your life, other people's lives? Relationships, work, children, money, habits. Trying to control stuff around us is a pretty tiring business. And our capacity to do that is, is fairly limited. And most of our emotional problems come as a result of us trying to exercise control on the world or on the people around us. Or because others have tried to exercise control on us. And the impact of that. We all do it. We do it to make ourselves feel better and safer and bigger instead of just chilling and putting ourselves in the hands of God. In our relationships, we play the blame game just like Adam and Eve did back there in Genesis. It's not my fault, it's your fault. No, 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 it's not me. It's... We've been doing it all our lives for centuries. And when we try and control our world, the truth is everything gets messed up. Every relationship, every family... All of our work and creation itself becomes corrupted. Everything breaks. And many of, us, many of us have lived through, or maybe even are living through now, the results of things that are broken, 
because we've tried to control or other people have tried to exercise control for whatever reason, not here to judge, but some of us are just living in that place now where we're living with the after effects of somebody somewhere not letting God be God. And so from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus, the story is that God is wrestling back from control of his people. He's trying to make things new again like they were at the start. He wants to restore the world to how it was meant to be, how it was always meant to be. His main aim is that humans, us, will be in right relationship with God and for everything to be right in the world and for us to relate well with one another and for our work to have meaning and for everything to be reclaimed and redeemed and renewed for a new creation. So God tries to do this with his people in the Old Testament. He, he calls this nation. He sets them apart for himself. He says, look, you guys, we're going to do this thing. You know, you live in the right way. You live within these kind of guidelines, these laws, and this will lead to a great life where stuff happens and we can participate together in the kingdom of peace and righteousness and life and blessing. And that will not just be a blessing for you. It will be a blessing for all nations. That's what he says to his people. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but it doesn't go that well. And whenever God's people receive any level of blessing, they end up just trying to take power and control back. And things go wrong and get messed up and they get cursed and not blessed and they have to say sorry and then God gives them another chance and it goes round and round and round like this in this cycle of cursing and blessing as God and his people wrestle over decades and centuries. But remember, God's original intention, it was and it always has been to bless his people and for them to be a blessing to others. And so by the time that we get to the New Testament and Jesus enters the story, things have got pretty bad. The Jews are at an all-time low. The Roman Empire has conquered and is ruling their land. The Jewish religious system, the temple worship, that's all corrupted. And when Jesus comes, he starts to use the sort of language that they've heard before. Language like the language of Genesis. He starts, when he talks, it sounds like what he's saying is he's making things new again. He puts his hands on people and their bodies get healed. Recreation. We read of withered hands growing back. We read of blind eyes being restored. We read of the lame walking, legs being fixed, legs getting straightened, backs getting straightened, legs growing. We read of that stuff. Not only that, but Jesus begins to speak in such a way as the things that he say collide with the powers of the age, the powers of Rome and the powers of the temple religious system. And that proves to be a perfect storm, in, Tom's, in Tom Wright's words. This collision proves to be so strong that those powers basically get him and kill him. And in order to fully understand what it is to know Jesus, that's the story we have to set him in. That's his biblical context. And knowing that helps us make sense of what it is for us to live within the new life he offers. So as I said, I'm borrowing from Tom Wright this week, and he's got this book, Simply Jesus. I thoroughly recommend it. It's 220 pages or something. And it just explains this whole thing. And it's, it's, he's got an amazing academic background, but this is, he writes academic and popular books. This is a popular book. This is one that, that um, 
that tries to sort of just explain this story in everyday language that we would understand. And he describes how Jesus is fulfilling components of a story that call in us, that show us what it is for us to have life with him. See, if we don't know what it is that Jesus says he's up to, then we won't know what it is to walk with him now. And Tom Wright suggests controversially for many that most people who follow Jesus in church don't understand what the gospel's really about. And he gives several examples. I'm going to show you a video clip now of him. It's about six or seven minutes long, okay? And he gives several examples in a very short time. Now, it's, it's sort of like getting a jet wash and putting it in your mouth and drinking because there's a lot in there. But hang on to it. And we'll just unpack a little bit afterwards. Go for it, guys. Uh, at the outset of your book, you tell the reader that you think there is a serious problem at the very heart of the Christian faith and practice as you've experienced it. You say your increasing impression is that most of Western Christian tradition has simply forgotten what the four Gospels are really all about. Well, that's quite provocative. Could you elaborate on that statement and uh, tell us what, in essence, we have forgotten? Yes, I've often wondered since writing that whether I was overstating it, but actually looking around and listening and attending church and talking with friends, I still want to stick to it because at the heart of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is this enormous claim that something actually happened right there at the beginning of the first century through the work and death and resurrection of Jesus. Something happened which has transformed the world, and we have tended to slide that downhill into being Jesus simply providing a system of salvation which enables us later um, to leave the world or uh, to escape the world in some way, either by uh, our spirituality in the present or by a salvation which will take us away from the world entirely in the future. Whereas the four Gospels, living as they did within the world of Second Temple Judaism, believed that through Jesus, the one God of Israel, who is the creator of the world, had acted to reclaim the world, to redeem the world, to rescue the world, not to enable people to leave it behind. And this idea is scary for most modern people in the Western world, because for the last 200 years, Western thought in general, and Christianity along with that, has tended to think in terms of splitting apart things that are, quote, worldly, whether we call them political or social or whatever, mm -hmm. and then religious or spiritual things over there. And so we have read the Gospels through a grid of interpretation which is systematically and at every point denying that one of the main things that the Gospels are trying to affirm. So uh, I don't know how to say that uh, except by doing it rather sharply, that I think we've all been getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, maybe recall for us some particular passages in the New Testament that uh, point out uh, the, the emphasis or the importance of Jesus and the kingdom and his as kingship? Yes, I suppose um, a passage which many, many Western Christians know very well because they may hear it read in church at Christmas time and so on is the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is doing in that passage, hooking up with what he does in his story of Jesus' resurrection, is to tell the story of Jesus as the story of a new Genesis, a new beginning. And Genesis is all about the creation and about God's beautiful, lovely world. 
And the story John tells in his gospel from beginning to end is a story not about Jesus telling people to leave the world behind and go somewhere else, but a story about how in and through Jesus, the one God of creation is rescuing creation and enabling his people to live as new creation people. That's a way of telling the story which I never heard when I was growing up in church and and when I was being taught as a student and so on, and we need to recapture it. But um, this comes to a climax in John's Gospel and that extraordinary scene in chapters 18 and 19 when Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate. And here we have the kingdom of God squaring off against the kingdom of Caesar. But it isn't uh, Jesus saying, well, all this kingdom stuff is a waste of time. It's Jesus and Pilate arguing about different visions of kingdom and truth and power. We see that as well in, say, the beginning of Luke's gospel, where Luke, uh, in chapter 2, spends some time setting up um, the, the, the chronology in terms of the Roman emperor of the time, Augustus Caesar, who was emperor when Jesus was born. And Luke describes that in considerable detail, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Augustus Caesar wanted to have a census so he could get more tax and do all that stuff, which was standard practice at the time. Anyone living at the time would know that this story, any Jew living at the time would know this story of somebody being born in the royal house of David in Bethlehem at precisely the moment when the Roman Empire is flexing its muscles, is bound to lead on to a sense of, well, which kingdom are we going to go with then? And the story ends for Luke, not at the end of Luke's gospel, but at the end of Acts, with Paul announcing God as king and Jesus as Lord in Rome, openly and unhindered. And Luke kind of says to us, okay, you do the math, you figure out what's going on here. One third quick example, in Mark chapter 10, when James and John say they want to sit one at Jesus' right and one at his left, um, Jesus explains not only do they not have a clue what they're talking about, but that there are two different ways of doing power. The rulers of the nations, he says, boss people about and bully them and harry them and so on. He says, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to do it the other way, by the power of servanthood, Mm. because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the gospel isn't about an otherworldly dream. It's about a different way of doing stuff in and for this world, because it's God's world and God loves it and has come to rescue it. And just tailpiece. One of the most famous verses in Scripture, John 3.16, it doesn't say God so hated the world that he sent his Son. God so loved the world. Mm. And that's the whole purpose is God's reclaiming of his rights as creator over the whole world. Mm-hmm. As you're talking, I was also wondering about, what about the Jesus' parables of the kingdom. Do some of those uh, point in the same direction? The parables of the kingdom are fascinating because at one level, of course, they are illustrations, just like you or I might toss into a sermon or a talk, um, an illustration that happens to occur to us while we're on the way to church or whatever. But they're much more than that. Those parables of seed and growth um, play back in the minds of Jesus' hearers. And we have to remember that most of them, the main texts they had in their minds were the Old Testament scriptures. They play back particularly through the prophetic images about God sowing his people, about God sowing Israel, making it a fruitful place, etc. 
but they play all the way back to Genesis 1 again, where you get the rather lavish account of God creating plants with seed in them, bearing fruit, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the idea of plants coming up and bearing fruit is a new creation idea. It's a new Israel idea. If you track it through Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's a return from exile idea. And these all kind of nest together and fit together. So that though what Jesus is saying is a direct challenge to these people who are listening to him now, that challenge resonates out with a sense that this kingdom vision is about God doing the new thing, which is going with the grain of the original creation, but now making it much more fruitful. You see this in the miracle stories when Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes. It isn't that he says, forget eating loaves and fishes entirely, I've got something totally different. Um, these are signs that the God of creation is doing new things. He's on the move in a new way. Right. Yeah, that's right. You can all go, hmm. <laughs> I told you, it's like drinking a jet wash, isn't it? <laughs> I could sit and listen to him all day. Um, there are so many things to reflect on there, but I just want to choose one theme just to pick up on this morning, just coming out of that. Uh, last week we looked at Jesus as the new king, and uh, we're looking at Jesus as the new creation. Now everyone in the world has to answer two questions in life. The first question is, why is the world in such a mess? And the second question is, what are we supposed to do about that? Now if you have a secular worldview, if that's the place that you're coming from, then you'll say something like this. A secular worldview says the world is in a mess First of all, which proves that there is no good God. And so therefore, it's up to you. It's up to you to do what you can to survive, to take power, to take control, to make money, enjoy life, take in as much pleasure as you can. You've heard the phrase, work hard, play hard. Try not to disrupt too many other people while you're doing that, if you can, along the way. But if you need to, if it needs to disrupt others and... And, you know, in order to have your needs met and have a decent life, the life you deserve, then go ahead, disrupt as much as you possibly can without being punished. And that's what life's about. And, you know, along the way, if you can help a few people, then I, I guess you should do that. And that's what a secular worldview says. And as followers of Jesus, I don't know about you, but I oppose <laughs> and reject that worldview because it just doesn't stand up in the eyes of the Bible. The Bible teaches that the world was made good, not evil. God didn't make a bad world. He made an amazing world, but something went wrong that needs reclaiming. And so it may be that instead you have a religious worldview. And the religious worldview, which, as he alluded to then, which is the story of pretty much most of the Western Protestant evangelical church that certainly I grew up in, and that I probably inherited most of my faith tradition from, says that the world is so broken that we have to figure out a way to escape. Whether we escape in the now, I mean, there are some church groups that escape the world literally in the now, or whether we escape in the future. And this view presents a gospel that basically says it's all about what happens when you die. It's okay, we're going to heaven when you die. Now, when I was a kid in my church, we used to go down to the shopping center on Saturday mornings to do evangelism. We called it evangelism. What it meant was doing surveys. 
We would stand on the corner and we would stop people as they were shopping and we would interview them and say, we're just doing a survey about religious views. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? And we'd get through and we'd sort of tease them in and it would all lead to the sucker punch question, which would be, and if you were to die tonight, how do you know you're not going to hell? Anybody else do this or was it just me? (laughs) And, And... I don't know if we were trying to frighten people into the kingdom or certainly trying to sort of argue them in. But this narrative, the narrative that, purports, that, that supports that, says that the, only gospel, the gospel we have in Jesus is only any use to us at the point that we leave this earth. And still many churches will teach this view. I alluded to that last week. But there are some major problems with this view. Because it's clear in the Bible that Jesus is not simply trying to help us when we die. He's trying to help us live. John 10.10 says, I've come that you might have life. And a guy called Dallas Willard put it like this. He said, Jesus is not trying to get people into heaven. He's trying to get heaven into people. See, he is in the business of recreation of making us into different type of people, people who are shaped and transformed by the gospel and by what Jesus is up to, and then who take part in the shaping and transforming of the world around us in his name. Many people over the years have come into life with Jesus simply as a way of preparing how to die. What does that make a church? I think, I think it makes us a warehouse, just where, where you store Christians until they die, until they get... Pre- I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing with the view that says when we die, we go and be with God and we're promoted to glory. Awesome. But Jesus had some more plans for us than that. Come to Jesus so your future is secure. You know, I quoted that song last week, if you were here, Fishing for Religion. Thank you for those who tweeted about it. It's, I was thrilled to discover a few die-hard 90s hip-hop fans in the church. And, um, but some of us were raised with this message in our own church tradition. And worse still, there were others of us who weren't raised in church, but this is all we ever heard from the church. This overwriting narrative that it's all about securing your eternal future and not about what Jesus wants to do now. Interestingly, you know, you can tell a church's overriding narrative pretty much fairly quickly by examining the songs that they sing together. I remember being at a songwriter's gathering about 10 years ago, and a guy called John Bell, who um, is part of the Iona community up north in Scotland, um, was talking, and he was sharing with all these songwriters, all pretty much Protestant evangelical songwriters in the UK. He said, you know, I've looked in your songbook, and I've looked at the images of Jesus that you're singing about. I've done a, a survey of the whole. He picked up, the, I think it was a Spring Harvest songbook from 200, 250 songs he's been through. And he said, and overwhelmingly, there are three key images that come through in the songs that you're singing. One is of Jesus as a baby. One is of Jesus on the cross. And one is of Jesus up in heaven with his father. And he says, the problem with that is, You can argue this maybe about the cross, but they're all pretty much passive images of Jesus. What about Jesus on the ground, doing the stuff, impacting people's lives, going about kingdom business, this business of recreation? We're not singing about that. 
And what we sing about tends to stick in our minds, the predominant metaphors and how we see our faith. So I was preparing this the other day, I thought, well, reality check. I better check our own songbook. <laughs> Here are three examples of songs I found that we do sing that I think, just put the first one up for me, uh, Pete. Water you turn into wine, open the eyes of the blind. Next verse. What's in it? Uh, into the darkness you shine, that's good. Our God is greater than it. And just the chorus. Our God is stronger and healer of power. This is an, an active image of Jesus. <laughs> Joe's just looking at me and going, phew. <laughs> <laughs> have, a look at, have a look at the next song for me, which is just, just go, to the, yeah, go to the chorus of this, Pete, will you? This is amazing grace, unfailing love. You take my place. Next bit. Uh, you lay down your life. The next bit, this is the bit that I, I, I mean, I like the whole song, but this is the, the next verse is the bit I really like. Brings our chaos back into order. Makes the orphan a son and daughter. And the next verse as well. Rules the nations with truth and justice. This is the sort of stuff that Jesus talks about. And here's the last one. I know you all love this song. Just put the, uh, the third one on. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts. Set our hearts ablaze. Next verse. We hunger and we thirst, refuse to waste our lives. See the, cap- see the captives' hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We're laying down our life for heaven's cause. And the chorus is, bring your kingdom here, build your kingdom here, sorry, let the darkness fear. I mean, I love that. I love that. Phew, as I said. These are just examples of songs that we sing that help us with that narrative, which is this. You might have heard it said this way. It isn't pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on the plate while you wait. <laughs> Jesus is not just interested in what happens to us at the end of the life. He's interested in now. When God is trying to get hold of lives, he's interested in our marriages, in our jobs, in our finances, in reshaping the kind of people we are. That's why we run a Love After Marriage course here. That's why we're running a cat course He's interested in reshaping our money. He's interested in managing our worry and our stress so that we become the kind of people that live at peace and in freedom, that really know how to chill out. See, Jesus demonstrated this by not simply giving us the power to do better or the power to overcome. He actually took on our greatest enemy, took that into his hands and feet and died on the cross to demonstrate that he has the ultimate power for recreation. Now, we all suffer from some kind of hopelessness. Different times. We probably all determine at some point that this is never going to get any better. I'm just going to have to manage, whether it's my control issues. Do you have control issues? I mean, I, I have to, when, whenever I get stressed, I have to tidy up. Tidy up. My family say it's just a good thing to tidy up, Nigel. I know it's a good thing to tidy up, but I find that, you know, I need to make, take control of my environment. Am I getting a bit close to some people? Whether it's, our, um, whether it's our disordered sexual desires, I guess it's not right, but I just have to get what I need. Whether it's our disordered greed, I just need more stuff. Whatever it is that isn't right... God promises to make us new. He promises to restore and heal and transform. That is the kind of life he offers. 
It isn't a case of, oh, I'll just go to church and, well, I guess I should do that and I should keep the rules and, you know, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do and eat my vegetables. <laughs> it's not like that. It's like live life to the full in the most amazing and fantastic way. Jesus is the best way to live. He's in the business of renewing sad, messed up, broken lives. It's happening all around us. You know, we say, come as you are. We're the church of the second chance and the third chance. And some of, most of what we do, the most profound things we do as a church are helping those who just are really struggling to make some progress. And as well as all that, we get to participate in seeing our whole world change. We get to look at the city of Winchester and say, you know, there are families at Christmas who don't have anything. They don't have toys for their kids. They don't have food to eat. We can fix that in the name of Jesus. There are kids who don't have decent clothes to go to school in. We can fix that. There are babies without cots. If you look at the wider world, in our generation, as you know, there is no reason why anyone in this world should be hungry. It's not a supply issue. It's a distribution issue based on greed and fear and power and control. And there's no reason that the people of God can't be part of solving that one. Or sex trafficking. Or broken marriages or addictions. Or counselling. Our job as God's people is to reclaim and redeem. And bring that about in our own lives and then in the lives of the people around us. We see signs of that. We saw Community Sunday we had a few weeks ago. Treasure hunting. Washing cars, just blessing people in communities. I loved it. I was chatting to somebody on Community Sunday, and we were having a long chat, just chatting away, and they, they were just having their car washed. And I loved it when they turned to me and they said, it's not really about the car washing, is it? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you've got us. Never mind. You're right, it isn't. It's about building community. He said it's about building community, isn't it? I said, Yes. See, our work should be redeemed. The money we make and the influence we have is all for us to serve and transform and change the world we live in. It's not just about having a nice Sunday church life where you go along and have a bit of worship and have a warm, fuzzy feeling inside and know that our future's secure. <laughs> Keep Jesus in that box. Or maybe it's us that are kept in the box. I'm not sure. God wants all of it. And here's the end piece. The audacious claim of the Bible. If you turn, we had the beginning, now turn to the end. Revelation 21, the audacious claim of the Bible is that somehow, some way, Jesus has made it possible for everyone to participate in that. To know him and to be changed by him and to be part of what he's doing. And perhaps even crazier than that, as it talks about in Revelation 21, all of human history is crashing towards a point where God is going to make everything new again. Have a look at Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What does the next verse say? Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This isn't about us going up. This is about him coming down. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. And it says, look, God's dwelling place is now where? Up in heaven? No, among the people. 
And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be with them and he will be their God. That sounds like the end of the story to me. And there will be no more death or more mourning or crying or pain. And the old order of things has passed away. And the last bit, verse five, he who was seated on the throne, he says what? I am making everything new. Isn't that powerful? That's where this story is going. The story of recreation, which Jesus started and we're continuing in. That's the new horizon that might, the song we sang this morning that might let us in. You've been listening somehow, <laughs> writing songs about the new, pardon? Yeah. You read the book? Psh, there you go. It's like God planned it. This is the hope we're called to. And we have a choice to make, folks. Because you can look at that and say, either that's complete fantasy and a pipe dream, or it's reality. And if it's reality, then isn't it worth giving everything to? I mean, everything. Give everything we have. That's my encouragement to us today. I am going to stop. I've finished. (laughs) Give everything we have and everything we are to being part of what God is doing and how he is remaking everything. It starts with us personally, and then it flows out into the world that we live in to demonstrate the hope that's found in Jesus. Why don't we stand together? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come now, we pray. Thank you for what you're doing. And would you come? And Lord, as... As I've shared this and as we've listened to Tom Wright, would you now sink this word deep into our hearts? That we might respond from our hearts to your heart. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Thank you for your presence here. Come and do all that you want to do. In the business of recreation. It could be today that you are here and you are feeling hopeless. That you, there are worry, worries, stresses or pain, be it physical pain in your body or emotional pain. We really believe, we really believe in this church that God can break into that and give that recreative power, that what's promised in heaven now. In a second, we're going to offer you an opportunity just to come and receive prayer. We invite him. That's what we do every week. We invite him to into our minds and our bodies and our relationships. Some of us are thinking just there's just no hope in that, in that situation. There's no hope in that relationship. And in a minute, I'd love, if that's where you're at, we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. At the same time, some of you are called to be part of redeeming and changing the way things work in the world. Well, we all are in some way, but some of you, specifically in your jobs, work with the dying and the sick. Maybe you're in healthcare or you're in education or you work with young people or you work in the area of justice. 
You'll know who you are. But you serve people who are in desperate need. And if that's you, we would love to pray for you as well today. That God would empower you. Just empower you to continue to bring hope and healing and transformation in the areas and to the people that you work with.